Let's turn to Psalm 27 tonight. It's one of those nights where I have two messages. Exactly two and exactly want to do teach each one exactly as much as the other. I almost was going to go back to the time when I let you vote. I'm still thinking about it. Nah. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we're gathered here tonight because the passion of our human spirit desires purely and intensely to know you and to know your Son, Jesus Christ. For to know you is definitely to love you and our entire desire is to be lovers of God. We know that all things are caused by you to work toward the ultimate good to the God lovers and you have promised a kingdom and a reign and an inheritance that's extraordinary both in time and in the ages to come to those who love you according to James 2.5 Eye has not seen nor has ear heard nor has it ever entered into the imagination the things that you have prepared for those who love you and Father tonight we are grateful to receive another inheritance of your kindness and grace for it's that grace that causes your love to be flooded throughout our hearts and to return to you from us. We are so dependent upon you as to depend upon you to love you. And for this dependence we are grateful. We consent to your intent and present our bodies to you afresh, our entire being to you, as is our reasonable service as priests. This we do through Christ Jesus, and in his name, amen. Tonight the subject is the transcendent principles in Scripture. And I want to clarify what I mean by that. I was asked the other night whether in this study I would indicate verses or parts of Scripture where the five precepts of transcendence are stated outright and if I remember correctly, I answered in the affirmative. But now I have to retract that answer for the simple reason that my intention from the beginning has not been so much to identify these transcendent precepts exactly as they exist in the scriptures, but to apply these precepts to Christian living, for they are all intensely applicable. And so we can find commands of Scripture that either explicitly or implicitly state or declare these transcendent principles or the means by which we transcend self and live this higher integration of human living. They state either explicitly or implicitly the commands for attentiveness, for intelligence, reasonableness, responsibility, and love. But these commands are not spoken in a vacuum, meaning they aren't just said, be attentive, for then we'd have to ask, to what? To whom? 
be responsible for then we'd have to say in what context, what for, and for what. And so these are transcendent principles because they apply to anything. They apply to profession, they pro apply to academic concentration, they apply to relationships, social relationships, family relationships. But I'm applying them to the transcendent living that is Christian living. Following the passion or the eros of the human spirit. People cannot recognize that passion, for it is not merely a passion of the soul, but of the spirit. It is a passion that is the deepest of all. It is an eros, but it is the pure desire, un, a pure detached desire and disinterested desire, and a not self-regarding desire to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection and to be somehow conformed to his death so as to enter into that extraordinary out-resurrection from the dead both in time and in the eternal state. <coughs> and the eternal state is when time is intensified as well as transcended. So we can, we can find these things, but that's not the purpose of my study. My purpose in this study is to be far more subtle, and in doing so, be far more direct and far more efficacious in the study, hovering around these principles and seeing how they apply. For they apply in a life of grace. They apply in a life of operative grace, in which God acts toward us, and cooperative grace in which God acts in our own consent and within and with our own will. Moving our will and yet not coercing the will. For it is God in us both willing and empowering the things that are to the good pleasure of God, the things that he wants us to accomplishment, to accomplish for his honor and his glory and for our entire fulfillment in life. And so in every case, when we find these precepts in Scripture in some way written, there is an object to which these transcendent precepts are directed. As we've shown, be attentive is specifically be attentive to God, to His Word, to the Scriptures. What saith the Scriptures, says the King James. To the apostles and prophets, as Jude 17 says, and 2 Peter 3, 1 to 5. To the Lord Jesus Christ's own words, Matthew 17, 5. To what the Spirit says to the churches seven times in the book of Revelation, in the seven edicts to the seven messianic communities. Be attentive, then, can be applied to any field. It's the first precept of transcendence. It can be applied to sports to martial arts instruction, to the high school or college classroom, to personal relationships, to marriage, family, social interaction, current events, to one's profession, whether it's on an assembly line or in a criminal investigation, in service-oriented or leadership function, in the precise calculations of engineering, or in the subtle meanings of art. 
or in all the fantastic and wonderful dramatic processes of life itself. Be attentive. And we're applying the precept to the special sphere, the transcendent sphere of Christian living, the special function of Christian living. We're applying the precept to the special sphere, which is transcendent above all other spheres, for this is a supernatural living, requiring a supernatural dynamic, and even a supernatural infusion of motivation. Therefore, we're considering this precept, be attentive, as it relates to that which results in the transcendence of the self in a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus. This goes beyond the passion of the soul and shares the passion of the Christ in the human spirit. No one is simply propelled into that life while being inattentive. Just as God doesn't force virtue through someone hostile and whose intent is hostile and who does not consent to his own grace and kindness. God doesn't force his love through a hateful vessel. Rather, he moves the will in a gentle way without coercing so that his intent moves the consent of a free, willing person. That's the mystery. And mysteries are called mysteries because of their excess of intelligibility. That means they offer something that is not completely grasped and understood. They do have a measure of intelligibility, but they have an excess of intelligibility, meaning there's always going to be something else that we can apprehend about them. They are tremendous mysteries, the mysteries of the faith. So no one is simply propelled into the living we're talking about, forced into it, coerced into it, while being inattentive or indifferent, apathetic on the one hand, or by being overtly self-involved or embroiled unduly in the details of life and the details that make up mere mundane human living. For that is the seed being choked out by the details of life. One has to be attentive to the voice that calls beyond the mundane, beyond the ordinary, to the transcendent, the supramundane. That's the voice of the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And I lead them out, and I lead them in, and they find pasture. The problem is discerning that still small voice in the vast cacophony of disharmony, disharmony and voices of dissent and dissonance in this world today, all clamoring for attention, some of them even putting a bid on our souls, our lives. One has to be attentive to the voice that calls us beyond the mundane beyond the merely biological, beyond that living which is minimal biological existence. 
or what we call the living, that is merely ego-regarding. The sheep of the good shepherd attend to his voice. My sheep listen to my voice. Be attentive. So is there something in the Bible where we can extract be attentive? Not exactly, because just to be attentive would be having no application. It would be shouted in a vacuum. So there's never just be attentive. There's be attentive to what I'm about to say, Jesus said. Let this saying sink into your hearts. Be careful to listen carefully. Be careful how you hear. Luke 8.18, especially to the parables. Mark 4.24, be careful what you hear. And anybody that has ears, let them be extremely careful to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's the attentive who are led out by the shepherd, out of the merely mundane, and into the supra-mundane, into the clearing, out of the briars and brambles where they flounder as bewildered existential subjects, into the clearing where they flourish in the light of Messiah. For the scripture says, Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Messiah will shine on you. And so we come into the clearing, led by the shepherd, led by the shepherd's voice. We don't know step by step where we're going, but we come into his light, his marvelous light. And in his light, we not only flourish, but in his light, we are enlightened. As the scripture says again, in your light, we see light. It is the attentive who awake to the new day. The new day is the new creation. It has begun. Have you awakened to the new day? It has begun. That new day can mean countless personalized blessings for each believer. But that new day can also mean a standardized grace that is beyond measure for all. It's the attentive who wake to the new day of the new creation that has begun with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But it began for us individually when he raised us up out of spiritual death into life, into union with him. When we believed. Merely when we believed. Only when we believed that Jesus is the Messiah of the genuine Israel. When we believed him to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, we became incorporated into the Israel over whom he is Messiah, and incorporated into the Israel that he is all by himself, but now that he is with others. It's the attentive who awake from sleep, and sleep in the Bible indicates the minimum human existence. To enter into the fulfilling drama that's living indeed. For I have come, says the shepherd, that they may have life, but that they may have it more 
abundantly, that it may be a transcendent human living in Christ Jesus. I thought this out before I started teaching it, tested to see if it was intensely, radically, almost too biblical for most people, and then I said, I'll teach it, for it is. I refuse to teach, to speak about anything from this pulpit that isn't intensely biblical. But you, the audience, are going to have to sometimes detect the 60 or 70 verses that may be hidden in a paragraph because you are growing up. It's those who attend upon the Word of God and who are impressed by it, says Isaiah 66, 2. Stand in awe and in fear. It is those who are promoted to higher horizons and enter the vertical liberty of the sons of God. The vertical liberty of the sons of God happens when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and He lifts us up in due season to higher horizons, not just wider ones or broader ones, higher ones, with higher viewpoints and higher points with which to view life and from which to view all things. This is what God does for us. The higher we are elevated into vertical liberties, the more we have the liberty to move vertically from one horizon to the next, where there will be times when we must operate on the lower manifold of common sense, but we will do so in Christ Jesus. There are times when we must move in the realm of attentiveness to the job. I once worked where we had to punch holes through these, this really thick rubber thing, which was going to make pontoons for soldiers to travel over, the guy I worked with was a heroin addict, and he was on—he was in cold turkey, and he was very mad. He was on speed and about eight or other, eight or nine other things. And he, I said, well, "Where are these going?" And this was kind of a fly-by-night operation. It came and went up in uh, Massachusetts somewhere many, many years ago. I remember the Wings was playing on the radio all day long, so that was a long time ago, and it was new. <laughs> But I said, where are these pontoons going? He said, everywhere. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the Israelis are getting them, the Palestinians are getting them, the one side's getting them, they're all getting them. I don't know if he was lying, because he was, as I said, he was coming down hard. But I had this thing where this giant machine would slam down and punch through about this much rubber, and then they'd put these little things in there and so that they could grasp them. And I was standing there, you have to do it with your thumbs, and it was wham, like that, and then it moved a couple inches, and wham, and this old-timer came up to me, and he said, how long have you been here? I said, just a couple days on this thing. And he says, you know, it's amazing. And he started to take, take a long conversation. Two sentences is way too long for me. That's why I quit going to gyms. That's why I wanted to get an assembly line job and just stick to it. But he talked to me for about five minutes about everything, and then he says, you know, the last person on this job had their thumb taken right off with that thing. And this, honestly, I said to him, how'd that happen? He said, well, well they were talking to me. <laughs> and he was dead serious. He never missed a beat. He didn't think it was even, you know, he didn't even get it. 
And uh, so I didn't even really say anything after that. I just kind of stuck to my assembly line. But you see, then I had to be attentive. I couldn't really start thinking of messages. I was going to Bible school at the time, but I couldn't really think about, I was thinking about that one thing. And so I had to move into that lower manifold and pay attention to the punch because I really enjoy the use of both thumbs. I went home that night and started to think, what is it when you don't, how do you, how can you even be a gunslinger, you know what I mean? Or choke somebody who's talking to you and I can't, you know, you're just like, what do you do? Just go like this or something, I don't know. The point is we have to descend to lower manifolds, but we can also advert to the higher Horizons, such as prayerful silence. We can move into prayerful silence. Every time we move into this vertical liberty, though, it doesn't mean that we're ascending in some realm where we're better than others. In fact, it's ascending into a realm where we see others from that viewpoint as more important than ourselves. So it isn't transcendental meditation. As Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to say, I thought Yogi Bear made more sense, and Yogi Berra even. I thought one of his sayings when he said to the Yankees on the first day, line up in alphabetical order according to height, <laughs> made more sense than Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. But in James 4.10, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up. That's precisely what he means. Bring us into the higher integration of living. Lift us into higher vertical integrations, higher vertical horizons. Once we've been lifted up into that, we may not always live in this particular horizon, but we have the liberty to advert to it, to resort to it now as a summer home, as a recreation place in our soul. And that's what happens to martyrs. Martyrs under the severest kind of pain and torture can advert to higher horizons and have, which is why you get Antipas singing inside a brazen bull when it's on the fire. And he sings hymns. Why? Because he's actually been lifted to a horizon above his own human pain. And this was the case of the martyrs, for they received a grace that we cannot fathom. We only begin to fathom it in our measured sufferings, where extraordinary grace meets us. Some are given extraordinary measures of testing, only to receive extraordinary amounts of grace. For God will always be equal to and a little above that which we're going through. Be sure that you don't ride on the emotion or the enthusiasm of a communicator. Instead, understand that true passion in a communicator of the Word of God is the passion of the human spirit. And sometimes that's a passion that is expressed with tranquility and quietness. Not with volume or apparent enthusiasm. Be careful. That is not the measure of the shepherd's voice.
God's voice is a still, small voice. The Hebrew has the nuance in 1 Kings 19 of almost a voiceless voice, a volumeless voice, a voice that transcends mere volume, a word that comes from an eternal is. For you see, nothing is future to God. All things are present to him now. This is the divine transcendence. The greatest transcendence is divine transcendence. All things are present to him now. Just knowing that calls us to a higher integration of thinking and living. For the Lord says, I am the high and lofty holy one who dwell in the highest place of all, with him also, who is of a crushed spirit. What is a crushed spirit? Why do we have to get it crushed to go there? Have you ever known such intensive longing that you are crushed under it? The passion of the human spirit brought to a place of the greatest possible intensity. And that's where God lifts you up to live where he lives. And to see what he sees in some measure. No, not omniscience. No, not omnipresence. No, not even astral soul travel. <coughs> but more of the mystery revealed. Thankfully, the mystery will always have an excess of intelligibility, meaning we'll never tap at all. So the attentive wake from sleep. The attentive attend to the word. They enter into the drama that's living indeed. It's those who attend upon the word, who wake up in the morning of their lives and stare purposefully into the mirror to see who they are, as defined by a fulfilled Torah. A Torah fulfilled by Jesus Christ and filled full with him. For when we look into the mirror of this fulfilled law, we don't see a demand upon us. We see the fulfiller of it reflected in the Torah of fulfillment. And we see ourselves in him. And we appropriate who we are as the Israel of God. It's been said recently to me by a friend and colleague, oh, it could never be that Gentiles could be the Israel of God. That's not reasonable. May I say to you that it is eminently reasonable and that anything other than that is entirely unreasonable and disobeys the transcendent precepts. Be reasonable. One translation reads in Isaiah 118 and 116 and following, Come and let us reason together, God says. Let's be reasonable. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. The inattentive never attend to the gospel of Christ, and therefore they never believe it. 
Those who have believed it, but then drop their attentiveness to the word and the careful cultivation of their faculties to discern the valuable from the worthless, as Hebrews 11, 5, 11 to 14 says. They never develop and grow. They never receive the distinction of or the distinguishing of their consciousness. Therefore, they depend upon the dynamics of others to carry them in the spiritual life. And they become afraid. And so it is that the command, be intelligent, is not spoken in a vacuum and with no purpose or no object. The command, be intelligent, grows out from the command, be, in, be attentive. For by being attentive, for example, to the Pauline epistles, a survey of Paul, all of Paul, is one of my ideas that I may be doing next. All at once. Being attentive, for example, to the Pauline epistles, we become intelligent with regard to what the will of the Lord is in the present dispensation. 2 Peter 3.16-18 in connection with Ephesians 5.17. See, I'm not going to be doing this all the time. you got to do it. I'm setting you up for the spikes. I'm not doing all the spiking. I'm not expressing the kind of youthful pastoral passion that you want me to express. I want you to express that. I'm, ex I'm running on a new gear now, running on a new kind of fuel, and it's the passion of the human spirit, and the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching the innermost parts. In Proverbs 20, 27, okay, once in a while. If we're attentive, we'll not become in, if we're inattentive, rather, we'll not become intelligent. For intelligence doesn't get absorbed by something like osmosis. You know what gets absorbed by osmosis? Common sense. You don't sit down and learn it in school. You don't sit down and learn it in church like you learn the things of God. You, you take it in by osmosis. You hear daddy say it, and grandma say it, and everybody around you say it, and live by it. You read it in the newspapers, you see it on the news. You even have pundits calling for common sense. You read the revolutionaries of America, and you read Thomas Paine, who wrote the book on common sense, or at least the pamphlet. Common sense comes by osmosis. Divine viewpoint comes by disciplined, academic training in doctrine, learning with attentiveness, becoming intelligent with the intelligibility of the mind and thinking of Christ, the plan of God, the purpose of God. And it doesn't come by osmosis. That's why the word disciple, mathetes, means disciplined learner. The attentive subject is required to show up in the classroom of Christ. Likewise, the intelligence which we're commanded is not an unrealistic expectation that we're to suddenly become smart, get smart. Rather, it's a command to use a faculty of intelligence which God has already given us. It's the human spirit which searches for knowledge, the spirit in whose eros is a pure, detached, 
disinterested. And by disinterested, I mean not interested for ego reasons. Desire to know. The command, be intelligent, is the command to inquire of God. For intelligence comes through asking questions and getting answers. That's why we ask questions for intelligence. Asking questions to search for intelligence. The intelligence we seek is the wisdom of God. The understanding that is spiritual understanding. The command, be intelligent, then, is the command to inquire of God. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives freely and without upbraiding. He's not the type of person you go into the office and say, I really would like to know this, and he ends up saying, do you have an appointment? And what are you doing here again? No, he's not that type of a person. He's got, he gives you 24-7 access. And we condemn ourselves because we haven't been there to pray when God sometimes, if you humanized him a little bit in the, in for, for an analogy by nature, he would be saying, how come they're not coming to ask me questions, to inquire of me? I have so much to tell them, but I'm not going to just drop it on them. I'm waiting to be very gracious to them in Isaiah 30:18. So, this capacity for inquiry is in us. God gave it to us. The Old Testament prophets were said to have inquired diligently into the salvation that would come to us. And as to the what, the when, the who, and the how of the messianic sufferings and the glories that were to follow. They knew both from the scriptures. They wanted to know how this would work out. They came to the conclusion that it would not be in their own lifetimes, but that it would come to us. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. And check this out. In Luke 2.46, Jesus is 12 years of age, and that is a critical formation time for a young person. The age is seven, the age 12, some of the old-fashioned educators and psychologists like Jean Piaget had this understanding. They properly understood it. Since then, we've had a whole lot of wackos teach us about our children and how they learn. But in Luke 2.46, the scripture says that Jesus' parents, and that means, of course, the mother of Christ, not the mother of God, and Joseph, who was not his father, but his parents were searching for him. He was missing for three days and three nights. Imagine the panic. But he's 12. They found him in the temple complex three days later. And he was, quote, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Asking them questions, I thought Jesus knew it all. He was a man, a young man, a boy. And under the kenosis prescription, he had ignorance. And he sought to fill the ignorance by questioning teachers of the law. But in Luke 2.47, it says, Those who heard his intelligence and his answers were astounded. Because he also gave answers. 
And in Luke 2.52, the scripture testifies that from age 12 onward, Jesus continued, quote, to grow in wisdom and maturity and favor with God and with mankind. Intelligence increases as truth becomes intelligible, but truth becomes intelligible when we ask questions and get answers. Before long, we're giving the answers to the questions we've asked and asking greater questions. So be intelligent means use your pure desire to know to ask questions for intelligence and upon getting the answers ask further questions and then ask questions for reflection which result in reasonable affirmations. Follow up with questions for deliberation which end with decisions and then responsible action. For once you see the course of action after deliberation and verified by the scriptures of truth, you are responsible to come to that conviction, as I did with the Israel of God. Once you come to that conviction and it becomes a virtually unconditioned conviction, you can't stay inside the box where you were before to ameliorate the feelings of others. You've got to disrupt. Not that you're a revolutionary, but you've got to be responsible to communicate your new conviction. Or take that course of action, which has now come to be clearly shown to be the one to be taken, which may mean to wait longer. It may mean to have patience, to endure for a longer time, until God does what he's promised to do or what he has shown you that, he should, that you should anticipate in his will. And so in this way, the five precepts coalesce in a single fluency and flow. And so they're not just stuck in there, mandates that you can pull out a scripture and say, oh yeah, that's really in there. It's in there in a way that we can't even imagine. It's so intricately in all of the synthesis of the scriptures that it becomes the flow of life. And it becomes the fluency of the abundant living, the higher integration of human living that is in Christ Jesus. The fluency and flow that gives meaning and definition to an abundant, dramatic living. For in Christian living, or the higher integration of human living that's in Christ Jesus, the pure desire to know is applied toward the superior excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, as Paul called it. For which he said, I've counted all things as loss. All the things, in other words, that he had as a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as the star student of Gamaliel and as a, an eighth-day circumcised man and all the rest of it. So for the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord which transcended and was so precious that it has led to the voluntary loss of the lesser values of prestige piety, piety for prestige, honor among men, respect by peers, and all the riches and wealth that the Egyptian dynasty could give to Moses or the Jerusalem that is now could give to Saul of Tarsus. And what now 
all the world can offer us. The psalmist obeyed the transcendental precept then, be intelligent. For this is what he said in Psalm 27.4. I've translated it, which is just a little tweak or two here and there. And I've brought it up to date in our way of speaking. I've asked the Lord for one thing above all. And that is what I'll seek after. That I would be permitted to live in the house of the Lord for the rest of my life. So that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That wish is God's command. We do live in His house and will for the rest of our lives, for we are the household of God. And now to inquire in His temple. And you are the temple of God. In that temple, we inquire. And it's right to do so. It's following the pure desire of the human spirit. Many will excuse themselves for attending to the Word. They'll claim not to have the intellect, and it's getting kind of thought-provoking lately, sounding kind of intellectual. We don't want our faith to get too reasonable. We don't want growing in grace to become too responsible. We don't want to take seriously the mandates to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, even though it's grace that creates the will, grace that moves the will without overwhelming the consent. They'll use the excuse. They don't have the intellect for it. But this is only rationalizing away the responsibility to follow the pure desire to know. That desire lives in the young child as well as the old sage. Many will also excuse themselves from the command, be intelligent, by saying, sometimes proudly they say it, I am a person of common sense. Reminds me of a German ice cream. Lottie Frickendoss ice cream. <laughs> Just woke up a cup. I see I descended quickly to a lower manifold. Well, if any specialty of human thinking it does come by osmosis, it is common sense. So congratulations for what you have absorbed by just being in your environment all your life. Common sense. But along with common sense, you've also absorbed all of the arrogance that goes with it and all the elements that are really common nonsense and all the elements that are blockades to insight that takes you outside of your little world when all you know is that if you lean on the stove when it's orange and blazing red, it will hurt. And all you ever have as a motto in life is, it works for me. And go ahead and live that life. Common sense. Wonderful. Awesome. 
You see, the prouder you are about common sense, the madder you are at me right now. I'm not speaking to anyone in these, this house, no doubt. But the tapes get around, or the MP3s, or whatever the hell they're called now. <laughs> Anyways. So it's a little more than common sense. You can get that by osmosis. It just comes into you. It's like a chemical thing. You take it on. But don't think that that's being intelligent. For example, in Deuteronomy, the scripture says, and I'll close with this, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 39, the scripture says, Today, recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Both recognizing and keeping in mind are functions of intelligence. Or how about this one in Galatians 3, 7? Therefore, know this. Know this. Be intelligent about this. Know this. That's a command. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Everybody who believes that Jesus is the Christ is the Israel of God. I've only begun to be bizarre on this one. I have not yet begun to defile myself. <laughs> that is, in the eyes of some. Defiling ourselves in the eyes of some may be just what God wants, as in the case of David dancing down the street, doing cartwheels and all the rest of it. Someone else will be saying, I'm a common sense person. You can say to them, isn't it just more honest to say, I'm just not interested? That would at least be honest, because in such a person, God can ignite the desire to inquire and to know. The other one, God's got to work on to pop the bubble of arrogance. And that's all that arrogance is. It's a big bubble. But a big bubble can pop with a loud explosion. Self-regarding knowledge only inflates, but love edifies. Only God can instigate a conversion, so you can't convince someone who's otherwise minded. Don't waste your time. We can pray. God can instigate a conversion. And He'll do so in the hardest cases. Those are the funnest cases to pray for. We can pray. God can instigate a conversion. Speaking of prayer, there's an area that demands attentiveness called prayer. Attentiveness as to what the will of the Lord is, is required for effective prayer. Reasonableness, responsibility, and love make the most effective prayer warrior. As the Word says, be persisting in prayer, keeping alert, staying attentive in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2. So are there verses in the Scripture that nucleate these precepts? Nucleate's a weird word, strange word, but it's a word. It simply means a passage, in this case, in which the nucleus is this precept, though it's not shouted out. What if you just got thrown into the world 
thrown in here on our own, as Jim Morrison said before he died in the bathtub there at that in France, the doors, like a dog without a bone thrown on this stage called Earth. What if we were, and all we heard from heaven was, be intelligent. We'd be staring like this for the next 20 years. So the Bible doesn't just say, be intelligent. It says, be intelligent about what the will of the Lord is. Be knowing this, that there's one God in heaven and one God on earth, and there is no other. Know this, brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the estimation of this world, and yet rich in faith, and the lovers of God to inherit the kingdom that he's promised? James 2.5. Know this. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, nor shadow of turning. And Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he said to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. Are there verses in Scripture that nucleate these precepts? Scripture's galore. Be attentive is a command seven times in the edicts of the king, Jesus, to the seven churches of, the, of Asia. Revelation 2.7, 2.11, When it came to the all-important parables spoken by Jesus, the command is to be careful to listen and careful how you listen. For it takes a special kind of listening to understand who God is by analogies to nature, analogies to business, analogies, analogies to law, and now analogies to science, physics, metaphysics, analogies to philosophy, literature, language. And that the, attent the attentiveness yields to intelligence is shown by the principle taught by Jesus that understanding is measured to the attentive in the measure of their attentiveness. In the measure of their commitment to be attentive, that is the measure of understanding that's measured to them. Don't worry, grace gets lodged in all this. Because just with the commandment to be in love, God commands it, but then He sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts so that it takes a return trip to God mediated by Christ Jesus. So it's a matter of our consent. But it's not a matter of our power or even of our will. It's a matter of God's intent working in our consent and fulfilling the commands of God. And so... The precept to be attentive is married to the precept to be in love. In Mark 12, 29, B to 31, as we've seen. For there Jesus said, now listen to this, Israel. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your understanding and all your strength. This is the second. You will love your neighbor as yourself. There is not another commandment greater than these. So be in love is the fifth of the transcendent precepts. And it's also the highest and most important of the commandments in the scriptures. 
Or how about Revelation 3, 20? Listen. Be attentive. Can you hear me knocking? I, Jesus, am standing at the door, knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, into the world of his or her interiority, and we'll dine together, he said. What's that mean? An invitation to partake of the messianic banquet now to believers. In John 8, 47, Jesus goes so far as to say, he who is from God is attentive to God's words. He who is of God is attentive to God's words. I would say, lodged in there somewhere is the transcendent principle, be attentive. In fact, he goes to so far as to say, to those who are lis not listening, he said, you don't listen because you are not from God. Without being attentive, we don't learn of the mysteries of the faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul said, listen up. I'm letting you in on a mystery. Not all of us will sleep the sleep of death, but we will all change. It's a mystery. It's freighted with an excess of intelligibility, meaning we can get more and more intelligent about it because humankind is the only kind in which intelligibility becomes intelligence in us. But a mystery means that there's elements and depths of it that indicate an excess of intelligibility that only omniscience can handle. So we're constantly growing in the mysteries of the faith. Though we have some appropriation of them, we can expect more and more appropriation. James 2, again, in verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers, be attentive to this, he says. Didn't God choose the poor? And by poor, he means poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs right now is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those in the eros of the human spirit, following the desire to know with an unfulfilled passion unfulfilled passion, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. How God desires sometimes to extend the depth of the poverty of our human knowing and desiring so that the fulfillment will be rich and satisfying beyond our possibility to imagine and envisage it. So seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Didn't God choose the poor, by the estimate of this world, to be rich in terms defined by faith, and to be heirs of the kingdom that He's promised to those who love Him? Be intelligent, says the Scripture. Though we aren't able to extract a commandment from the Scriptures that only says this in a vacuum, thankfully, there are nevertheless many Scriptures that command that we become intelligent. I mentioned a few to you. Understand this, my beloved brothers, in James 1.19, let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man doesn't bring forth the righteousness of God. 
Again, we've seen in Ephesians 5.17, there's the command that we become intelligent with regard to the Lord's will and be reasonable. And this is the one I'm going to take up next. This is the one that really goes deeper than any of the others so far, except for love. But in as far as be intelligent, then be reasonable. The third precept goes deeper than attentiveness and deeper than intelligence. Because even though there is no reading of the precept, be reasonable in the scriptures. There is no outright statement of this in scripture, but rather there is a deeper mandate for the believer to be reasonable with reference to specific things, such as the performance of their reasonable service in Romans 12.1, and the command to desire the reasonable milk of divine kindness. That was the other message I was going to bring tonight, the milk of divine kindness. You've heard of the milk of human kindness? There is the milk of divine kindness. I could even be, again, waxing somewhat vulgar in the lower manifolds. But there is the doctrine of babies suck. <laughs> Desire the sincere milk of the word, says the scripture. That's not what it says. It says logike, logikon, which means desire the milk of reasonableness, which is divine kindness. And we used to, back in the old days, and I used to read the King James, say, what a funny name for a kid, a suckling. And he was a suckling. Well, he's a, why, why is he a suckling? Because that's all he can do is suck. He sucks, that's it. He <laughs> desires, and then the kid already knows how to suck. Because this is a picture of, the, of us as newborn infants. We have a God-given desire for what sustains us and causes us to develop and grow up with respect to who we are in our salvation. And it begins with this pure desire. It doesn't say the milk of the word. It says the milk of reasonableness or the reasonable milk, which in verse three says it is divine kindness. When you've tasted on the first level of human consciousness, which is the experience level, then on the experience level, we are like an infant, a suckling. And thank God, infants are sucklings. <laughs>